instead of the egg, you can use ground flaxseed or chia seeds. Those are typically the best ones um, just because they're neutral in flavor. Um, and so if you want one egg, you get a tablespoon of ground flaxseed plus two to three tablespoons of water. Whisk that together and just let it sit there for 10 minutes so it kind of binds and becomes a gel. Mm-hmm. And then you can add it to your recipe and fold it in. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen this week, or a view, or a download. Wherever it is in the world that you are, we appreciate the fact that you are here. Today, we will be shifting the focus to one of the most popular breakfast foods, And it also happens to be an ingredient found in so many recipes, especially if you're a baker. Today, we are going to be talking about eggs. And specifically, we will be talking about some of the science that's out there about them. And we're going to set you up also with a lot of easy ways to cut them out of your kitchen with some simple swaps, some of which... On the surface, you might think, hey, there is no way in the world that I could ever replace an egg with this. Lo and behold, you sure can. But let's start with the science that is out there. How often have you heard about a study that touts the health benefits of eggs? Well, it turns out that the egg industry is behind a lot of those headlines. And Dr. Neil Barnard will be joining us in just a minute to talk about a group of researchers, including himself, who got together to take a look at where the dollars for that research were coming from, and more importantly, how scrambled that egg science actually is. And that's really the big concern. What is being swept under the rug? So that is part one of the show today. Also joining me is dietitian Maggie Neola. And Maggie, she is a whiz in the kitchen. I'm so excited that she's here to share with us some easy ways that you can eliminate eggs from almost any recipe. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of options out there, and Maggie has us covered. I'm talking about everything from baking recipes to scrambles to eggless egg salads. Maggie has it all. So there is a lot to get into on today's show, and we should not waste any more time. Let's get started right now with Dr. Neil Barnard. Continuing here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll, talking about eggs, the great egg debate. Is the industry scrambling science, or are we getting accurate data? Depends on who you ask and what, really, day it is of the week. There's so much out there, and sitting across the table from me is a gentleman who can actually bring a little bit of truth to this, shed some light on this very topic. Dr. Neil Barnard, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Chuck. Great to be here. It is wonderful to have you here. Uh, Let's just start right here. Do eggs raise cholesterol? Um, You wouldn't have thought so if it was 2015, because that was the year that the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee said that the effect of dietary cholesterol, meaning egg yolk, basically, 
um, that it's spotty, depends on who you are, that it wasn't really a nutrient of concern. Um, But we started digging into it, and I have to say the science is in a very different direction. We looked at um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of studies, and we effectively looked at every study ever done on on eggs and cholesterol. And we narrowed it down to the ones um, that, that really were relevant to this and found uh, – well, we found a couple of things. Um, first of all, eggs do raise cholesterol, um, to answer your question. Good to know. Um, one egg – if you have – a typical egg has – very roughly close close to 200 milligrams of dietary cholesterol. And the amount that it raises your blood cholesterol might vary a bit between maybe four points to as much as nine points or, or more, depending, we believe, on how much cholesterol you're eating already and uh, also what your blood cholesterol might have been starting out. And there's a, a lot of variability, variability in there, but, but it does, you do see an increase. Where that's worrisome is let's say you're feeding eggs to your entire school, Right, um, and you're doing it day after day after day after day. Um, you're elevating cholesterol, and for and for some of those people, you're going to have trouble right. um, as time goes on. Uh, but the first thing that really struck us as we were looking through these studies was that back when all this started, in 1950s, 1960s, the studies on eggs and cholesterol were funded by government sources, research uh, research organizations, and then. In the 70s and 80s and 90s, the egg industry started to get nervous hmm. because people were finding that they raised cholesterol and people were limiting their egg uh, consumption or stopping eating them altogether. And so the egg industry jumped in and started funding studies itself uh, through something called the Egg Nutrition Center. And um, this is a, a, actually a government entity, but it's paid for by industry. And in the past decade... The majority of, of studies on dietary cholesterol, about 60%, have been funded by the egg industry. Is that the equivalent of uh, DMI, Dairy Management Inc., which is government slash it's, – it's like a hybrid you know, of industry funding, and, and, but it's a government agency. It sounds like it's kind of a similar thing here. That, that's right. It's, it's what we call a checkoff program, and the government sets it up, and then they administer it. Uh, for the industry, but they'll have the industry pay in a certain amount for every carton of eggs or whatever, uh, every gallon of milk that is sold, a certain amount goes into the checkoff to promote eggs or promote milk, or there's a beef checkoff, uh, same kind of deal. So, so it's, it's mandated by the government, and it's, it's the industry's way of making sure that everybody um, in their industry is lockstep um, getting involved with these promotions, and they generate a ton of money. And they have been eager to try to make eggs cholesterol raising uh, uh, aspect go away, mm. um, but it's it's clearly there when you read the studies. So the studies that you guys analyzed, you you referenced the 1950s. So am I correct then in assuming that you guys actually looked at seven decades worth of data here? Every single one. <laughs> That's right. Wow. We read it, read it, read it in detail. Um, and we have them all here. Um, yes, and it is—it's quite striking to see that back in those days there was really um, well in the, in the fifties and sixties the studies weren't necessarily terribly good, but by by the time you got to around the seventies and eighties and nineties it was not rocket science to feed eggs to college sophomores and see what happens to their blood. Right, um, and it became really quite clear that uh, there was an interesting study done 
um, by Bill Connors' group uh, on the West Coast. Uh, in, and they brought in a group of people. Some of them got eggs. Some of them got egg substitute that looks like eggs, but it's not eggs. And you could see right away they would diverge. The people getting the eggs, their cholesterols would rise. If they're getting egg substitute and weren't having any eggs, their cholesterols would fall. After four weeks, you switch them and you say, okay, you're now getting the real egg instead of the egg substitute, and everything just reverses. Their cholesterol levels would rise. Wow. And some of these patients, we're talking about significant rising, and, you know, maybe it depends on how much egg they were getting? Um, it, yes. It's, it's dose-related. So yeah. one egg will raise your cholesterol, as I mentioned. Um, it depends on a lot of factors, and it will bounce around, but roughly four to nine points. But what if a person has two eggs right. a day? Then double that. Right. Um, and there, one controversy is whether you see a greater effect in people who are not eating cholesterol at all to start with, or maybe you see less effect in them. Who knows? We're, we're actually trying to tease that out ourselves now. Bottom line, eggs raise cholesterol. Um, big problem came up, though, is that when you look at the interpretation of the findings, that's where problems really break loose. Because uh, if it was not an industry-funded study, if eggs raised cholesterol, when you read the conclusion of the study, it said eggs would raise cholesterol. Right. There were, uh, in 87% of cases, they basically said it. It was really clear. Um, in the other 13% of cases, they, they might uh, uh, waffle a little bit. They would say, well, the, 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 the increase in cholesterol might not have been st statistically significant. So they would, would say they raised cholesterol, but it could have been chance. That's um, a legitimate conclusion. Um, if it was an egg industry-funded study, they tried to make eggs look good, even when cholesterol got worse. There was one study from 2014. They brought in a group of students, gave them two eggs a day, five days a week. And their bad cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, rose on, by average 15 points. 15? 15 points, wow. yes. And the conclusion of the study was that eggs did not negatively affect their blood lipids. How does um, one come to that conclusion? Well, because if you have a small enough group of, of participants, you could say this could have been just a chance finding. Yes, it went up 15%, but if I did the experiment again, maybe it wouldn't have happened that way. So, yes, I, I am not making this wow. up. Um, the concept of statistical significance is one that might, people might be new to. The idea is, let's say I do a study in just one person, and I give you an egg and your cholesterol goes up. Maybe that's chance. Maybe it would have gone up anyway. So I bring in two people, and I give you eggs, and your cholesterol, both people, their cholesterol goes up. The more people you have, the more confidence that you have that your results are statistically significant, meaning this is not just chance. And the criterion that scientists use is if there is less than a 1 in 20 likelihood that this would have just happened by chance, then if it's less than 1 in 20, then they call it statistically significant. The egg industry, industry has done studies where in some cases they have had relatively few participants. And in those cases, the eggs might have raised cholesterol, but they'd say, well, it could have been chance. When you get to the conclusions they reach, they will very often say that there was no effect at all or, a neg or, or it just didn't do much of anything. There was a study done in the Netherlands. They fed a beverage that had an, an one and a half eggs in it per dose. They brought in volunteers, and some of them got this egg beverage. Others got a beverage without the eggs. And in the egg beverage group, their average cholesterol went up more than 9 points, 9.3 points. The people who did not get the egg beverage, only about 3.5 point change. Mm. So what they 
if that, if they felt that was chance, they should have said, well, it did raise cholesterol more, but it could have been chance. What instead they say is there was no difference between the groups. So 9.3 is not different from 3.5. I mean, that's six fingers away. <laughs> I'm, I'm counting it out here. Anyway, so, so you could excuse one fluky study. What we found was that in, the, in just a huge number, about 49% of the industry-funded studies, they would have a conclusion that did not match the actual results. So whether it was industry-funded or not, they would tend to find that eggs raise cholesterol. But if, but if it was an industry-funded study, they would say then maybe it didn't or it had a favorable effect. You know what that reminds me of is that recent uh, red meat study that came out where the data actually said, well, yeah, you know, it's bad for you, but go ahead and eat it. It's not going to do anything for you. And it turns out that there was industry funding involved in that study too. This is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And it, it manifests in years divisible by five. Um, 2010, <laughs> 2010 I, I'm not making this up. 2010, 2015, 2020 is around the corner. In years divisible by five. That's when the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee issues their new guidelines for what you should eat. So the year before that, which is where we are now, um, then that's when people are putting out all their, their studies. And so uh, meat won't hurt you and cheese won't hurt you and eggs are okay right, and right. all this kind of stuff. So, so when the egg thing broke, uh, to use a bad pun, uh, back in 2015, their whole, the whole idea was to try, the egg industry wanted to convince the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee to say that eggs don't matter. And, the, and, the in, and unfortunately, that's exactly what the committee said. Now, to the government's credit, when the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee said that eggs don't matter, the government said, I'm sorry, that's just not true. Right. It's, I mean, that's just a lie. It's an industry-funded fib. And the final guidelines came out and said, eat as little cholesterol as possible. And, and that's something that we've talked about on the show previously, yeah. is that humans have no nutritional need for external cholesterol. We produce what we need ourselves, right? Yeah. Yeah. Your body, you do need some cholesterol in your body to make hormones, to make cell membranes, and your liver and the other cells in your body will make it. Um, th there is no requirement for you to consume it. Um, if you were... You know, you, we're not carnivores uh, by, by nature. Um, human beings are great apes that eat plants. Plants don't have cholesterol. So for millions upon millions of years, our ancestors have been able to manufacture the cholesterol we need to make cell membranes flexible, to build estrogens and testosterone and the other hormones. And we, we make all the cholesterol we need. And if you decide, no, I'm going to eat like a carnivore. I'm, I'm going to eat meat. I'm going to eat cheese. Or I'm going to eat eggs. Then you're getting cholesterol that you don't need and that will add too much uh, to your body. So here's, here's the question. Obviously, uh, we have a network of professionals who know what they're doing, who worked tirelessly on the study. I assume that it took you a great number of months to analyze 70 years worth of data. Yes, it did. How does the average person discern whether or not something that they're reading in a magazine or a blog that they see online. How are they able to discern who did this study? Where are those dollars coming from? I have to tell you, Chuck, I, I feel your pain. Um, if a person goes no further than just seeing um, a, a social media post, they may never know. Um, the only way you know is you, you actually go to the study itself, you look in the fine print, 
where it says who paid for it. Um, now, when I read these studies, I can tell in the first paragraph. Um, if it's an egg-funded study, it will say something like, eggs are a valuable source of protein, <laughs> plus they're delicious. And, and you think, wait, 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 wait. Who, this smells really bad. <laughs> Who paid for this? You know, if it's not industry-funded, they're more even-handed. They say, they'll say cardiovascular disease is a problem and the role of cholesterol is under investigation. You know, it's, a, it's a completely different right. vibe. So you, you look down in the fine print. And if it's industry-funded, the vast majority have been from the Egg Nutrition Center, of, uh, which is this U.S. Uh, industry-funded checkoff program. So, yeah, they're, they're required to, to kind of say, you know, what are the conflicts of interest or something yes. like that. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, they, they are, and they usually do declare them. Um, that said, if it's picked up by uh, the media, they typically do not say who paid for it. They'll just say, in fact, in 2015 when this came out, the Dietary Guidelines Committee came out and said, we don't think eggs are an issue. Um, what the media should – and the media reported that. Doctors have been wrong all these years. Um, <laughs> yeah. But when, when, when you look at the studies that they rely on, unfortunately, the vast majority in current years are, are egg industry funded. Well, I don't want to be Debbie Downer here, but I'm looking at a chart that was published with – the study that was released here. And we're going to link off to the study on pcrm.org slash podcast. You can also find it in the show notes for this episode. But this chart here, beginning in the 1950s, uh, it's basically flatline. Don't really see any industry funding, as you said. But then beginning at 1960, it just kind of takes off like a rocket. And it's been at a pretty steady incline ever since. Are we seeing... Uh, is there any reason to think that we're going to be seeing an end to this trend? I, I don't think so um, because it, we, we, we've seen kind of a similar thing with regard to any product that's harmful. Um, take tobacco, for example. Um, back in the 1950s and 60s, there was a lot of uh, government money to try to figure out what did smoking do to your lungs? Um, did smoking cause lung cancer? Um, and by about 1960 or thereabouts, it was obvious. And so government funding was less targeted to prove this because it was already proved. Who at that point cares? Who wants to do a study at that point? The tobacco industry sure. wants to, to jump in. Um, so uh, the same thing with meat. If, if uh, saturated fat increases the risk of heart disease, um, initially it's all government funding, it's research, company, uh, research organizations are funding it, then the meat industry feels threatened. And it's been clearly proven that meat is harmful in many ways. So the people funding research now are industry groups mm -hmm. trying to undo it. And then they have others working for them to try to promote their message. And I think that we are getting far more sophisticated in the way that we are promoting messages. We see what happens on social media. You mentioned that. Like, it really only takes one tweet to take off, um, for a story to take off, and, and a lot of people don't fact check. So I think that it's really a, a key point that you made earlier is just to check on the study itself for who funded it. And many people are really not in a position to do it. So I'm really calling on the media themselves that when they report a study like this or like the meat study that you mentioned came out, I think, September 30th, um, and they were saying uh, meat isn't as bad as we think. It's really up to the media. When they, b before reporting a study, they should look at the funding source. They can take the extra time to do that and put in their, in their story, as they should have in that case, that the, <laughs> the uh, authors of the study were uh, – one of them was working for – Texas A&M University, he headed up $4.5 million worth of beef research, mm. uh, did, not, did not declare the conflict of interest. Another one, uh, the head author, 
was actually hired by that group, given a job <laughs> by, by them in the course of his work. And, you know, I come and work for the meat industry, industry please. Didn't declare it. Right. right. Um, and then their, their, uh, their uh, reports seem to say, oh, we're, we're squeaky clean. We're, there's no conflict of interest when there obviously are. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of money at stake. Oh, yeah. Uh, the egg industry, the meat industry, the dairy industry, and tobacco for the same, you know, same thing. These are, for the most part, honest, decent people who have gotten into a business. And in the course of time, over the course of time, uh, their family may have been in this business for generations. You discover that they're harmful. Right. Um, so the folks who got involved in tobacco farming in the 1800s or 1700s, and they've been really grew richer and richer, and then sooner or later you discover all the harm that is done, um, and then people start to get dishonest uh, trying to defend these products. And and back to the point about the media, I think you know just as there aren't. Uh, many nutrition courses for doctors in medical school, when you go through journalism school, you don't get any training on that kind of stuff. And you're trained how to fact check a story. But if the wool's kind of being pulled over your eyes and you don't have a medical background and you look at the study and you see all of these numbers and signs and you don't even know what they represent, you're just going to take this press release at face value. I think it would be really helpful if there was just some basic training for reporters so they could discern this information, how to fact-check a study. I think you're right. Um, some of the people who have co covered this are health reporters, and some of them do a pretty good job. Yeah. Um, others might be food reporters, and sometimes for them, the idea that steak is okay for you and <laughs> eggs are okay, some of them are – cheerleading for that message. Yeah. They've, they've enjoyed that contrarian message. Uh, some of them are, are editor, uh, editors or, or commentators who are writing an op-ed or writing an, an editorial. The, the Wall Street Journal came out with a really um, creepy um, editorial when, the, when these meat studies came out. And they said, aha, we knew meat was okay. All you, <laughs> and to use their words, they were saying liberals have been trying to paint meat as a bad thing. Uh, to try to advance their environmental agenda. And, but now they've been proved wrong and uh, meat is okay for you. And it, it, the Wall Street Journal actually gave a lot of common in, uh, uh, column inches to this unfortunately um, ill-intentioned and ill-informed <laughs> commentary. I will say by and large, though, the media did a pretty good job with that particular study. Uh, they, I have to say, well, we pushed very hard. Yes. Uh, when, when we knew the studies were coming out, uh, before, they, before they hit the press, we got copies of everything, and we tore them apart. We, we understood the problems with them just scientifically and were able to get a credible, credible message out to the press. So, so many people in the press said uh, new studies uh, seem to exonerate meat, but not so fast, say scientists. Right. So that's okay. Uh, what else? Is there anything else that uh, we should note about this uh, study that you put out? Well, I think the bottom line is this. Um, this despite the fact that controversies go back and forth, eggs are okay, eggs are not okay, um, when you actually look at the studies, whether they were done in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, or, or today, um, they are, have been remarkably consistent in what they have shown, uh, which is that, that eggs do not raise cholesterol as much as the bad fat in meat or cheese or for that matter, in eggs. Well, uh, I'm sorry. Let me be clear. The cholesterol that's in the egg t doesn't raise, raise your blood cholesterol quite as much as the saturated fat does. There's saturated fat in meat and dairy products and some in eggs, and that is a big driver for raising your blood cholesterol level. The cholesterol itself in the, in the yolk will also raise cholesterol, not as much as the saturated fat, but significantly. 
And on a population-wide uh, level, if you could take eggs out of the diets of everybody, cardiovascular disease would drop. Mm. Um, and we, frankly, should be doing that, yes. The nutrition nerd in me has one final question. Do we know yet why the cholesterol in an egg, even though it does raise it, won't raise it quite as much as saturated oh, fat? Um, Okay, it's, it's like this. Um, the, the saturated fat somehow stimulates your body to either retain more cholesterol or make more cholesterol. The, the cholesterol in an egg pretty much passively just goes through your intestinal tract into the bloodstream. It's sort of like if you have sugar in a soda. Does some of that sugar get into your blood? Sure, it does. If you have some caffeine in coffee, does some of that caffeine get into your blood? Absolutely. If you have an egg, does some of that cholesterol just diffuse into your uh, bloodstream? Yeah, it does. Uh, roughly half of it. Hmm. Um, with, with the saturated fat, it's different. It's actually changing your body chemistry in a more fun- fundamental way. Fascinating. Fascinating. And you guys were but, but the, Well, the good news is they're both in the same thing. Oh, yeah. If, you are, if you're not eating meat and dairy and eggs, you are eliminating nearly all the saturated fat and all the cholesterol in your diet. Absolutely. So it's not really uh, an issue. If, if people skip these things, they're going to be in the best possible position. I agree with you uh, 100%. And the other way that I look at this is, as you were talking earlier, it's, you were talking about, well, if you eat two eggs, you know, it, it doubles. And of, of course it does. But who eats just one egg with the breakfast? Very few people. It's well, always two or three eggs scrambled. They'll have, they'll have one. They might have two. Next to it is a slice of bacon. No, I'm sorry, two, three slices of bacon. Uh, and lunchtime is a bologna sandwich or a hot dog. And pretty soon it adds up into an epidemic of cardiovascular disease, <laughs> the number one cause of death in the United States, um, not to mention colorectal cancer and all the other problems that, that come with it. Uh, but um, thanks to you, Chuck, and, and others who are also getting this word out in a good way, there are more and more people who are getting smart about eating in a better way. Dr. Neil Bonner, thank you so very much for taking the time to shed some light on this with us today. Thank you, Chuck. So let's unpack that one more time. More than 85% of these studies found that eggs are bad news for cholesterol. But in about half of all of the studies funded by the egg industry, that fact was downplayed. Those are the findings of the research presented here today by Dr. Barnard. And if you want to take a look at the full study, we have posted a link to it in the episode notes on Apple Podcast, or you can head over to pcrm.org slash podcast, click on the page for this episode, and you can find a link to the study there as well. So let's keep egg rolling right along now. Growing up, I'm telling you, there was nothing like having scrambled eggs for breakfast on the weekend. And my mom, God bless her, she was not the best cook in the world. So I was dragging a step stool up to the stove at a young age, probably way too young to actually be doing it. But I wanted eggs. I just didn't want her to cook them. I absolutely loved them. They needed to be cooked. I was the man for the job. They are a staple of the American diet, just like egg salad or egg sandwiches or poached eggs, hard-boiled eggs, eggs over easy, eggs and bacon, eggs, 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 eggs. And that, that's just the beginning. If you crack open any cookbook, you are bound to see page after page 
filled with recipes calling for eggs. Maybe it's bread or homemade pasta or a casserole or dessert. Very common with those. In cooking, eggs are really about as common as flour and water. But if you're trying to go plant-based, if you're trying to eat that plant-based diet, you might be worried about giving up your favorite recipes. And what if that recipe calls for eggs? Fear not, my friend. This is a challenge that has been accepted by dietitian Maggie Neola. She has spent years in the kitchen fiddling with recipes, taking them from traditional over to plant-based. And she is here today with some of her favorite egg replacements. And I'll bet, especially with newer vegans, some of these swaps she's going to talk about, you may never have even considered they were a possibility. Continuing here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. So many recipes call for eggs. And if you're new to this whole vegan thing and you're like, well, I don't know how to make anything in the kitchen anymore because it all requires eggs. What do I do? Well, you are in luck. You are listening to the right podcast, my friend, because sitting across the table from me is a nutritionist, a cooking whiz, and a personal friend who works upstairs at the Barnard Medical Center. With that, we welcome Maggie Neola to the show. Welcome back, Maggie. Thank you, Chuck. When you first adopted a plant-based diet, how difficult was it for you to look at a cookbook and say, oh my goodness gracious, everything in here calls for eggs. What am I going to do? I'm never going to be able to eat again ever. Mm, I think it was hard, but what I did was I actually just looked at vegan recipes already. Mm. So that way I didn't have to think about how do I make that swap. Um, But then as I was just making vegan recipes, I was able to figure out, oh, this is replacing an egg. This is how they're doing that. Because a lot of cookbooks will discuss what are good egg swaps. Um, So that way I didn't have to come up with it myself. I was just reading what was said in a cookbook. Ah, see, you're smart. You're smarter than I was. I I went right to let's just make this as difficult as possible um, and then, you know, just go and and whatever. Uh, So but, you know, we we all have favorite recipes growing up, you know, the recipes that have been handed down throughout the generations. Definitely. You don't necessarily want to lose those when you change your diet. Mm -hmm. Very true. So it's important that we know what our options are here. And there are a ton, aren't there? There are definitely many options out there. Yeah. Just depends on what you're looking for. So some of these are going to be better for baking things. Others are going to be better for replicating straight up scrambled eggs Mm -hmm. or an egg salad, eggless Mm -hmm. salad, something like that, right? And even savory dishes too, like a lentil loaf or what you would think of as a meatloaf. Ah, I gotcha. Okay. A savory dish. Mm -hmm. Meatless meatloaf. Okay. There you go. I can dig it. Well, mm-hmm. why don't why don't we start there, right? Because okay. I don't know of a single meatloaf recipe, traditional meatloaf recipe that does not call for eggs. Yeah. So, if we're looking at doing a lentil loaf mm-hmm. instead of the egg, mm-hmm. what should we turn to? Right. So, you have your lentils instead of meat, and then instead of the egg, you can use ground flaxseed or chia seeds. Those are typically the best ones. Um, just because they're neutral in flavor. Tomato paste I've also seen as an option because it helps bind that lentil loaf just like it could in a veggie burger, for example. A lentil loaf is very much so a giant veggie burger that you bake in a a baking pan. So um, the flaxseed and the chia seed, the trick with that is they're, they're not wet, right? And so you have to add water to them. 
And typically it's a one to three or one to two ratio of a flax or chia to water. And, and so if you want one egg, let's say that recipe calls for one egg, you get a tablespoon of ground flax seed plus two to three tablespoons of water. And you whisk that together and just let it sit there for 10 minutes so it kind of binds and becomes a gel. Mm-hmm. And then you can add it to your recipe and fold it in. Oh, okay. So you let it sit. That's the key. Mm-hmm. What happens if you just kind of whisk it together and you just throw it right in there? Does it not yeah, do so its thing? Yeah, so basically what happens when, when it sits, it gels up and it takes in that liquid. Um, and so it's uniform. And then when you add it to everything, it uniformly distributes across that lentil loaf. Whereas if you don't, you have water and random flax seeds all floating around. Mm. So it might work, but it's definitely better to let it sit for a little bit before gotcha. you add it. How, how long do you think? About 10 minutes. Okay. At least five. That's not too just bad. Just on the countertop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could do that first and then chop up or get the other ingredients ready, Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Do it the first step. So yeah. that way you're not at the very end and you're ready to throw it in the oven. Um, but you didn't put the flax in and then you're like, I gotta wait another 10 minutes. So, and you, you can buy these things pre-ground, right? I mean, they're all pretty much ready at your fingertips. Yeah. You definitely want to buy them pre-ground. Your body doesn't really absorb it very well if it's not ground. Mm. Um, so be sure if you bought a bag that's uh, not ground to grind it yourself and like, I think it works in a coffee grinder, but I'm not sure to check on that one. People swear by chia and flax for so many other reasons. Mm-hmm. Like I know people that will not do a smoothie without their chia seeds in That's it. That's interesting because it's really hard to clean the blender out once they've been in there. Well, this particular gentleman who I'm thinking of had somebody else clean the blender for him. He was a, he was an athlete, and so he was able to afford somebody to do the cleaning for go. him. And so that was not his concern whatsoever. That's good. You know, but every single time those chia seeds were in there, uh, and and he really enjoyed it. Uh, do you know like what uh, what the health benefits of a chia seed are? Mm-hmm. The both chia and flax are pretty high in omega threes, which are an anti-inflammatory fat. We don't need a lot of them um, in terms of omega-3s, and they are found in small quantities in beans and dark leafy greens as well. That is good to know because so often listeners will write in and they'll be like, hey, I want to go vegan, but where do I get my omega-3s from if Mm -hmm. I'm not eating fish? Mm -hmm. So you're saying chia and flax are the way to go. Yep. Okay. You got it. Good to know. Mm -hmm. Um, What about uh, you go and the stores and a lot of times they try to make it really easy for you i guess you could call this cheating they have egg replacement packets Mm -hmm. and a lot of times these are either powder or it's like a soy liquid or something like that how familiar Mm -hmm. are you with those i've never used them i've seen them in recipes plenty of times and they're supposed to work very well um but i i tend to kind of go towards more with ingredients that i can recognize right um but yeah, it's definitely popular, well-used, uh, well-tested, all that kind of thing. Gotcha. All right. So we've talked about the savory dishes. Now let's talk about baking, breads, mm-hmm. desserts, things like that. If we're not using chia and flaxseed there, what mm-hmm. are we turning to? Well, first of all, you can use them there if you want to. But oh, okay. I, then again, you can totally do something else. Um, so let's say you're making banana bread. Bananas are have a really good binding effect. Um, and half a banana that's been mashed can replace, I think, one egg um, for that recipe. So that's one thing. You just want to mash it really well. Theoretically, there's already bananas in banana bread, so maybe it'd be fun to switch it up and do, like, pumpkin puree mm. or some other fruit puree could work really well, too. I think I was reading a blog somewhere where they said if you were going to do a, a, few, a fruit puree, it should be about a quarter of a cup mm-hmm. of that puree. Yeah, it seems like... Those liquids and any kind of egg replacer, it's like roughly, when you think about it in, in totality, it's about three to four tablespoons is replacing an egg. And there's four tablespoons in a quarter cup. 
So there you go. There you look at you doing the conversions. <laughs> uh, curious, with the banana, do you want one that's pretty ripe like this one I'm holding up, or do mm-hmm. you want one that's a little bit firmer? Kind of depends on what you're going for. Ooh. If it's a really sweet dish, then adding a very ripe banana would be useful. Um, also, knowing that that banana flavor is probably going to shine through because they're pretty flavorful. Yeah. Um, but if you're looking for something more, state, like, not as sweet, maybe using not as ripe of a banana. Gotcha. I don't think I'd use a green banana. That would make it bitter. It, it kind of so, would. It kind yeah. of would. I, I, I know that people, they like to eat their bananas a little bit more green because I think that that has a higher nutrient profile at that it's point. A, no, actually. So when it's more ripe, you actually absorb those nutrients better. Really? Yep. Okay. I always thought that it was the opposite. I, somebody had gotten in my ear and was telling me that the greener the banana, like the higher the nutrient content. Uh, so it's more broken down when it's ripe, but that means your body absorbs it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See that? That's why I love this show, and I love having access to you educated folks upstairs who know what you're talking about. So I'm not, you know, just relying on joesblog.com, who happens <laughs> to, you know, mention something about the nutrient profile of bananas, even though Joe happens to be a plumber and not a dietitian. <laughs> So this is this is really <laughs> important information. Uh, here's another one. Uh, avocado. I know that a lot of people will use some avocado as an egg replacer. Mm-hmm. Where can you see that working in? I could see that working in like a chocolate mousse. So anything with like cocoa powder because it's going to cover up that green color. Mm. Uh, you don't really want green coming in to cranberry bread or something. I mm. don't know. Um, or no. like cookies that don't have any color to them, right? That you would want green coming through. Um, So something with cocoa powder, chocolate mousse is a perfect example because it typically does call for an egg. Um, So the avocado, the fat kind of helps replace that. And and this is, okay, that is a very good point because an avocado obviously is a little bit higher in fat than some of the other options that we've been talking about. Is that advantageous with a lot of dishes to have that higher fat content? Does it even make a difference? It does make a difference because fat does add moisture when you're cooking, but technically those fruit purees, for example, do add a lot of moisture as well. So when you're baking, I don't know that it has as big of an effect, but I'm sure I'm sure a chef or a food scientist would have a lot more to add to that. Mm. Um, so I think the interesting thing about trying egg swaps is you're going to find some that you like and some that you don't um, with your recipe. So trying to really think through um, you know, which egg swap is going to work well in this recipe? What is my end goal? Um, and how is that going to alter it? Another one that was on virtually every blog, again, that had listings for egg replacements was applesauce. Now, we had talked mm-hmm. a little bit about fruit purees, but this yeah. one seems to be near the top of the list there. Applesauce is very common in place of oil. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, which is fat. Sure. So definitely true. Makes again, sense. it's adding that moisture to it. Important to note here, you should probably reach for the unsweetened applesauce. If you add, get the sweetened kind, that sugar might kind of alter the recipe flavor. In a yeah, little bit. it would make it sweeter for sure. Um, so sticking with an unsweetened would be no added sugar, mm-hmm. which is great. Yep. yep. Uh, peanut butter, another one that's kind of high in fat, but mm-hmm. people go for. Yeah, I've seen it in a chocolate bread before, um, like a, a quick bread for example. Chocolate. Chocolate and peanut butter, they go together. They're hand in hand. They, they really are. <laughs> they, they just fit together so perfectly, like a, like a hand in a glove. I yep, love it so yep. much. Uh, we're talking about how much peanut butter do you think? I think it's also like a quarter cup or a couple tablespoons. Okay. Yeah, sounds about right. Does yeah. that sound right to you? Yeah, I guess. I mean, 
I've never used peanut butter in place of an egg before, yeah, to be honest with you. Yeah, I've done it either. Yeah. Uh, banana was right up my alley. I've done that one. And the chi mm-hmm. and flax I had known about, except for the letting it sit together, the gelling thing. Yeah. That's well, a good tip. You know, interestingly enough, the chocolate bread that I was thinking of, it does call for peanut butter, but it also calls for mashed banana. So mm. <laughs> it's like a combination of them. So maybe the banana was for the egg and the peanut butter was just for flavor? Actually, I think it might be the opposite, but I don't know. It's a good mm-hmm. question. I mean, but then you've got chocolate, which goes with banana. You've got chocolate, which goes with peanut butter. You've got peanut butter, which goes with banana. What it's you just have is trio. like the holy trinity of taste <laughs> right there. I mean, that's unbelievable. It's a really good bread. I mean, that's – you know what else is really good? Mm-hmm. Uh, we did this uh, – Lee did a segment recently. Your colleague, Lee Crosby, the Fiber mm-hmm. Queen, she did a segment on WJLA recently um, where we had chocolate banana bread. Nice. And that cool. was – in our pcrm.org slash recipes. Oh, That's nice. in our database. Very cool. And this is like mm-hmm. game changing. Great. It's so good. I'll have to check it out. I think you should. Yeah. I, I think that literally after you eat that bread, your life will be about a half to maybe a full percent better. Most definitely. A little bit, a little bit richer. <laughs> um, here's the a, here's a easy one. Um, tofu. Yeah. This is this is a big one. I think especially when you're talking about not replacing it in an actual dish, but replacing the egg in terms of scrambled eggs mm-hmm. or egg salad, right? Yes. It's really good. Um, we actually just did a scrambled tofu for our most recent event called the Kickstart Intensive, mm-hmm. which we do three times a year. Um, two-day immersion program here in Washington, D.C., and people loved it. We Basically, you take firm tofu and you put it through – you can – you can put it through a tofu press if you have one, but you don't have to. Um, basically, you just want to press it either with some paper towels and books on top of that. Very, very heavy books for like 20 minutes. Gets rid of some of the moisture in it. Um, and then you crumble it up in your saute pan with other veggies and turmeric and nutritional yeast. Like basically those are going to turn it yellow. So it looks like a scrambled egg. Mm-hmm. Um, add some maybe some garlic and onion for flavor. And you have a scrambled tofu. The only trick to it is you have to... Just cook it until it's hot because tofu is already cooked. Like you don't really need to cook it all the way. There's not. There's no reason to like take it in there for 20 minutes or something. You know what I mean? Right. Now, this this actually does lead to a very good question. Mm-hmm. I will make a tofu scramble uh, for my wife and I on the weekends. And a lot of times there is still a lot of moisture there. And mm-hmm. so I'm wondering, should I cook it longer to cook the moisture out? Or mm. am I not? pressing it firm enough to get the liquid out in the first place yeah well the other variable is depending on what you're putting with it like mushrooms they have a lot of moisture Mm -hmm. so if you have that in there they're gonna release it same thing with zucchini yellow squash um so you may be getting extra moisture just from whatever you're cooking it with right um to kind of drain it off a little bit but yes definitely pressing it long enough is very important okay um and it's gonna make it a lot better in terms of texture. Is there a risk associated with trying to cook out some of that moisture? Will the tofu actually burn? I haven't experienced mm. this, but you, it seems to me like you're saying it could alter the flavor slightly, perhaps? Um, so when tofu, when you get rid of some of the water, it then takes on other flavors better. It absorbs that because it's not like getting diluted, essentially. Roger right? that. Um, but in terms of burning, that's just a matter of having the heat at not too high, stirring it frequently enough. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. So for a tofu scramble Mm -hmm. or an eggless egg salad, would you recommend a softer tofu or a harder tofu? It's kind of your choice. Um, 
for like an eggless egg salad, silken tofu is a little bit more common. Um, for a scrambled tofu, it's more likely going to be firm or extra firm tofu, but you can do silken if you want to lower the fat content. Okay. So silken is, that's the softer mm-hmm. of, of the kind. Why yeah. is that lower in fat? I don't know, actually. It's a good question. Maybe there's more water in it. I don't know. <laughs> All right. We'll, we'll look <laughs> but, that up. But the silken tofu is definitely going to make it a different texture for your scrambled tofu. Mm. Okay. Scrambled egg tofu, you know. Gotcha. You got it. I got no, no, <laughs> no, no. no. I, got, I got you. Tofu scramble, scrambled egg tofu, uh-huh. scrambled eggless tofu, silken eggless yep, yep. tofu scramble. Anyway, <laughs> it goes on and on and on. All right, that's that's interesting. Um, so the softer eggs, could you use theoretically tofu if you're baking and you just like really whip that up into mm-hmm. a pureed form? Yeah, I would recommend using more of a silken tofu for that, which actually I've seen in chocolate mousse as well. Um, we have a recipe on PCRM that's a silk that uses silken tofu for a chocolate mousse, Ooh. like a chocolate raspberry mousse, or maybe it's a pudding, mousse or pudding, one of those. Um, but yes, you can use that. That sounds delicious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I appreciate sweets more now that I've gone plant based. I was never a sweets guy before this, but now it's like maybe because it's natural sugars. You know, mm-hmm. it, I just enjoy it so much more. Yeah, maybe your taste buds are working better. Mm, I'm a fruitarian. <laughs> uh, here's one that I had not heard of until about 10 minutes before we started to roll in all honesty, and that is aquafaba. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. remind us what that is. Well, aquafaba is a fancy word for the liquid that's in a can of chickpeas. Okay. Or bean juice. How in the it. world does that work in terms of replacing an egg? Well, similar concept. You would use, I think, like three, four tablespoons to replace an egg. Um, a lot of times, though, it's used more in the meringue, and it replaces an egg white. Ah. Because um, it's similar in terms of, like, the protein content, I believe. Um, and so it gets whipped up just like an egg white would be, and it has virtually no color, right? So there's no yellow. Right. You don't want yellow in a meringue. No. Which is the yolk. Um, you want the white part, so... You think about it, it really does. It comes out of the can when you open a can of chickpeas like that. Mm-hmm. It really does kind of have that egg white consistency. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Kind of cloudy. By the by, if you soak your own chickpeas, you, you buy them in bulk, you buy them dry, mm-hmm. would that water that you soak in then count as aquafaba? It might be the water that you cook it in. Okay. I have to check. All right. Yeah. I don't think it's the soaking water. It's probably the cooking water. I, I feel like I've learned a lot. Yeah. But there's so many more miles to travel there's in this cooking journey. So many more miles. It's pretty I, exciting. I know. Uh, and let's wrap up with this. I love some spaghetti. So mm-hmm. many people love them some spaghetti. But you can't have spaghetti without noodles. You can't have lasagna without noodles. It's but true. so many of uh, these, especially homemade noodle recipes, call for eggs. Mm-hmm. You told me that you recently made some at your house mm-hmm. that did not have eggs in them. What, yeah. what did you do? I used silken tofu instead. Really? Yep. yep. How, how did that turn out? Really good. I made manicotti. Um, so it's basically semolina flour, double zero flour, which is like a similar version to all-purpose flour. Um, it's like the James Bond of flour, double yeah. O flour. Yep. Um, and silken tofu. Um, and so there may have been a few other things in there, but that's pretty much it. Um, and so, yeah, you create a dough out of it. You knead it just like you would bread dough, for example. Let it sit for a bit. Roll it out. Actually, you don't roll this one out. You put it through a pasta maker. Mm-hmm. Um, and But, yeah, the important part is you actually put all those ingredients initially into the food processor so that they puree really well and come together. Um, 
which allows that tofu to be distributed in it. Nice. And you can't tell. But the so the protein in tofu, I guess, is similar to what would be in an egg, and that's right. why it works. So you don't have to worry about eggs in your noodles if you make them yourself. It takes a long time, but it's very fun, and everybody loves it when it's done. Cooking time is the same for the noodles? Yeah. Well, um, so with manicotti, it's, well, baking, it's a fresh right? noodle. Yeah, yeah okay. you bake it for yeah. like half an hour. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, I learned it through Ruby. It's an online culinary school. Yo. Certificate program. Um, Look at you. So shout out to them. Okay. Wow. Maggie Neola, full of information. <laughs> I feel like if somebody comes to you uh, upstairs at, at the Barnard Medical Center, like, do you, are these kind of the conversations that you can have with people as well? Totally. Yeah. 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 If they're... Just like the question you asked me in the beginning, I don't know what to do. There's eggs and everything. I get that a lot. Yeah. So it's very practical. I love talking about practical things. That's you. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I'm, you know, practically flattered that you took this time (laughs) to come down here and and share some wisdom with us. This is this is awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Thank you very much. And uh, you can make an appointment to see Maggie if you live in the Washington, D.C. area. Just head over to barnardmedical.org and then come and see her right here in beautiful Washington, D.C. in Friendship Heights. Maggie Neola, you're the best. Thank you, Jack. (laughs) When someone first goes plant-based and they're trying to figure all of these things out, Part of the fun is learning about all of these substitutes that you would never think in a thousand years would work. I mean, who would think that you could swap out an egg for avocado or peanut butter or flaxseed, for goodness sake? Maybe if you're first going vegan, you don't even know what flaxseed is. That's the fun part, discovering all of this stuff and learning and educating yourself on that journey to health. It's a lot of fun, right? I want to take a second to say hi to Jane Brown, who listens to the exam room in Adelaide, Australia. Hi, Jane. She sent a nice note on Facebook, and she's super excited that her daughter will be part of an event there with Dr. Kim Williams. Dr. Kim Williams, the plant-based cardiologist extraordinaire. This event is the Adelaide Nutrition Symposium on February 2nd. They're calling it the heart of the matter. So Dr. Williams, he's going to be speaking there. He's a heart attack survivor now a big advocate for a plant-based diet. Really cool, fun guy to talk to. Really loved having him on the show recently. Really loved having him on the show in the past. Just a blast to talk to this guy and a phenomenal speaker. So you will learn a ton from him. And also at this event, they will be screening the documentary, The Game Changers. If you haven't seen that, this is all about the link between athletic performance and vegan diets, absolutely shattering the bro science that's so pervasive out there. People think, eh, I can't be an athlete and not eat meat, right? Well, think again. That's what The Game Changers is all about. So that's a fun event, February 2nd, the Adelaide Nutrition Symposium. If you're in the area, maybe go check it out. And I also want to say on a personal note that my heart goes out to everyone in Australia who is being impacted by these devastating wildfires. I'm holding a good thought for you all, both humans and animals. Everybody, it seems, is being impacted by these. And I know that there are millions and millions and millions of other people around the world who are holding those same good thoughts. So please, if you're being impacted, know that you are definitely in our thoughts and we are standing with you. 
Before we wrap things up this week, I wanted to also remind you about a special podcast series that we're doing right now in conjunction with the release of Dr. Barnard's new book called Your Body in Balance. And this book is all about hormones and your health and how making simple dietary changes can stop those hormones from going haywire. And the first show on this series, it is out now, focused all about how hormones can affect the skin. Dr. Barnard and I had the opportunity to sit down with Nina and Randon Nelson. These are identical twins who struggled mightily with acne to the point where they wouldn't even leave their house when their outbreaks were out of control. They tried antibiotics. They tried everything. Everything except looking at what it was that they were eating. And lo and behold, once they did that, those hormones that were causing that acne to rage, well, they came right under control. So you will hear from them and from Dr. Barnard, who will explain everything that was happening, causing those outbreaks, the hormone science related to all of it. It is a fascinating read and how their skin cleared up, Nina and Randa's skin, it is just night and day. Really, really fascinating, just mind-blowing before and after stuff. We also have some shows coming up in the series on PCOS. I know that that's something that a lot of people have written in asking us to tackle. So we will be doing that as part of this Your Body Imbalance series. Also going to be touching on infertility and endometriosis, thyroid issues, depression, diabetes, so many other conditions all driven by hormones. And every single one of these episodes will feature a remarkable story of someone who was able to turn their health around by changing their diet. So make sure that you subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast on Apple Podcast and wherever shows are available. And please also leave a five-star rating and a nice comment when you do. And share the show too, because maybe there's someone in your life who could use a little help. So let's get them going in the right direction. Pass the show on to them and hopefully, hopefully they can lead a healthier life. And also, heads up, if you're living in the Washington, D.C. area, Dr. Barnard and I will be doing a live taping of the podcast Friday night, February 7th at Busboys and Poets. We're going to be talking all about his new book, Your Body in Balance, and of course, all things hormones. So much to cover there. And the cool thing is the cost of admission, that ticket price, it includes a copy of the book. So Friday night, February 7th at Busboys and Poets in Washington, D.C., we would love to see you there. And you can RSVP right now at pcrm.org slash yourbodyinbalance and also find a full list of events there of where Dr. Barnard will be speaking. He's got a huge book tour coming up, so maybe he's coming to a town near you. And that, my friend, will just about do it for us for this week. Interesting stuff, right? My thanks again to Maggie Neola for her wonderful egg substitution ideas, and of course to Dr. Neil Barnard for joining us. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening, and remember, keep it plant-based. <laughs>